Hello, and welcome to the Bibliophile New Wave. I'm Duran. I'm Joe. And I'm Tony. And today I am joined with um, very two special guests, Joe and Tony. Um, Joe, would you like to introduce yourself? Yeah, so I'm just a friend of the group. Um, very interested in all these uh, sort of classics that I haven't gotten around to now that I'm more into reading. Wanted to tackle a big one, which is Sound and the Fury. And um, I've got some thoughts on that. I'm excited to share today. Great. Um, and like Joe said, today we are discussing a novel for the first time. And the book we picked is William Faulkner's novel, The Sound and the Fury. Um, it's about a Southern family named um, the Compsons, who um, kind of degenerates and eventually more or less break apart by the end of the novel. It's split up into four different parts, each narrated by a different character using um, a variety of different um, grammatical literary techniques. Um, and the final chapter is um, narrated in the third person. Um, Joe, would you like to start with the sound yeah. and the fury? Yeah. Yes. So the title, the sound and the fury, it, you know, it comes from a, a monologue from, um, Hamlet, right? And, uh, it's here. Let me get the, uh, the full quote up. Uh, I don't want to butcher it. It's, uh, right, out, out, brief candle, told by an idiot, full of sound and fury. Uh, it's talking about life, right, being full of sound and fury. And what we have in this uh, book are characters who are full of just that. They are so full of ideals, in some cases anger, frustration, hopes, and desires, but not action. Uh, you know, we've got one brother in this family. We've got one brother who is so obsessed with these, uh, so the Southern ideal that is fading, um, that when his sister has a child out of wedlock, the, the, uh, crushing of this Southern ideal of femininity and womanhood drives him to suicide, uh, because he sort of sees this as you know the destruction of what he put all his you know beliefs into which is this this idea of southern living southern values uh he's him as a character is full of this uh, angst this sound this fury inside of him that leads him to suicide we've got uh the brother jason who has to stay and raise this child from caddy the sister and he's obviously full of rage and fury and inaction right he uh has accepted this farm life and very bitterly uh so he's angry he's hateful towards uh his family and his his helpers around the house um and then of course i mean we have the um mentally challenged brother who is also full of all sorts of uh suffering because he is unable to process time and 
every event that's ever happened in his life he kind of views as happening on a uh, linear plane and he can't really process uh, events of his life is just kind of one ending unending bit about of trauma he doesn't know what's happened to his brothers he doesn't know where his, where his sister is it's kind of just a, a continuous confusing confusing existence and we see this horrible cycle of suffering kind of get broken at the end right with uh miss quentin uh caddy's daughter leaving with a um a traveling what was he a something quite whimsical a traveling show performer right and she quote unquote robs jason when all she had actually done was take the money that was given by caddy to her that jason was hoarding so she really didn't rob him she took what was hers and jason was unable to go to the cops for this because according to the the books he, this was money that was spent when really he was hoarding it because he had to spend a certain amount on her as someone who was picking up these checks, right? This was in the appendix that made this more clear. And I thought that was brilliant because she absolutely fucked this guy. She took the money that she was owed. Well, she, she fucked her first, but she fucked him back by taking the money she was owed and putting him in a position where she could, he could not prosecute her because the money was spent in the eyes of the law. So I thought that was a really nice touch. I'm kind of just rambling. <laughs> we can <laughs> we can uh we can uh talk about whatever. Sure, yeah. Um I think you definitely bring up a lot of great points. Um I think I want to I want to go I guess more to depth about um Benji's kind of lack of perception of time. I found that very interesting. Um Yeah. It what it, it's what made the novel at first very intimidating to me um as a yeah. reader since um it, it's a it's a strange thing to kind of start your narrative which has all these different characters that covers like the long span of time being narrated by a person who has absolutely no sense of time so um it, it, it's a it's a really big risk that faulkner takes here i think um and whether he pulls it off or not, um, I I, th I personally think he pulls it off. Although mm -hmm. I'm still kind of confused as to what exactly happened in the first chapter. But I think it's really interesting because it just makes you think about what time has done to the Compson family, and I think time um, and clocks and ticking noises that the that clocks make are um, is a very important motif like throughout the entirety of the novel. Um, like for example, I, I remember there's a few references to clocks in the Benji's chapter. I remember, I remember for a fact that Quentin visits a, like a clock store, right? During his chapter. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah. Um, and I remember like the, the ticks being, uh, like, like this, like recurring noise that, that keeps happening, like, um, in that section and, and like eventually like later in that chapter too. Um, but I, there's something about, about this idea of time I find really interesting. Um, as if, as if like, um, I, I'm not really sure if like time is either stagnant when it comes to the Compsons, like, um, are, are, can they like ever like really break out of their cycle or is time meant to like 
be showing how um, everything kind of like stays the same throughout throughout time until until the very end when um, like you said Miss Quentin finally like breaks that like that cycle of like evil surrounding like their family. So what do you, what do you guys think about this idea of like time and clocks that are shown in the book? I think that I think that uh, your perspective upon this would be changed if you read the appendix. In the appendix, you kind of come to see that uh, I think Faulkner has an idea of more progressive history than cyclical history. And so if you look at the appendix, you see this sort of um, quest of the individual, this like this movement from, I think it was like, I don't remember where the original Compton was from, like Scotland or something to their place in Mississippi. And you see that there actually was a sort of like good, strong uh, idea of family and uh, patriarchs and such that develop and eventually it reaches and declines, reaches uh, like a vertex, like a, a pinnacle and then declines and reaches a sort of state of decay. And I guess, I guess it's not cyclical in the sense that the family will have rises and falls, but it's cyclical in the sense that uh, what comes from the dirt can grow, but will eventually just return to dirt. Hmm. That's interesting. Um, and I was thinking about this idea of um, the the family declining, right? Since we're kind of like thrust in um, some part of the decline and the start of the novel. So yeah. I'm curious as, I, I don't really know if this really matters at all, but I'm curious if you guys have any perspective on um, when and like why this decline took place. Yeah. <clears throat> I, I, I've thought a lot about that. And I think that uh, like I'm, I, I, tr I can't remember if like there was anything in, in the discussion of Jason that like explained like why their father was an alcoholic, but but essentially like given that their family had like an alcoholic father and a sort of weak-willed mother, there was very little ability to um to like I guess raise kids that were uh, strong and valued in their own senses. And so they they uh, then like are trying to sort of escape and transcend their vision of uh, of because they already I think they're aware of the, the fact that their family is declining and so that's why they sell the pasture and allow Quentin to go to Harvard even though they know that it's probably like not a good bet and then they try to have a great uh, wedding for um, Caddy to try to like rescue I guess that's, that's how you would have rescued a woman from downfall back in the day but it, that, the, both of those things fail miserably right yeah um i was thinking about this idea of um which one of the like characters are like the perfect child of this couple and i think that jason is really like um in in a way the perfect child since he kind of like embodies like the cynicism of his father and more or less kind of listens to everything his mother does and i think in like in most cases that would mean that he would be like you know the good child like the um the one that would like go out and do things be a good person but because of like how messed up um the father and to a certain extent like the mother are like he just turns out to be like i guess probably the most evil out of all these characters by the end mm. mm -hmm. quite the hypothetical but like he, he like he, he seems to very much resent his mother and for good reason she's allowed caddy or not caddy sorry she, she's allowed quinton to just go off and do whatever she's totally unable to 
maintain order. And I, I think honestly, like the the um the birth of Benji probably weighed upon the family to a great extent. Probably prevented them from from uh, maintaining a, a constant state of order because there is a, a an entity of chaos within their vicinity at all times. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. true. And like something that, and it's really like not Benji's fault that he's like this. Although no. he's blamed for like you know all these different things going on um, to this yeah. family. And same with Quentin too, Miss Quentin, as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, also, I think Faulkner was writing from perspective of growing up in the South uh, in the early twentieth century when you used to have. Um, these aristocratic Southern families um, that all uh, suffered tremendously after, you know, losing the civil war, um, which, you know, it's a, it's a good thing the South lost for the country, but the people who were, you know, once these uh, paragons of, you know, so-called moral strength and courage and perseverance and chivalry uh, were all kind of psychologically, uh, broken down and traumatized because um this idea of southern pride uh had been crushed and you know it's how we see like an alcoholic father and i think that trickles down to what jason like you said uh mirroring his father quentin holding on extremely strongly to these southern values and the fact when he realizes it's all a sham it's his family has completely subverted these values it's so unbearable to him he realizes there's nothing left uh, he put all his eggs in this basket of uh, Southern values. And when he realizes his family has done nothing to uphold them, he kills himself. Um, you know, you've got the only person who shows love and tenderness uh, are, I think, two um, black servants, Dilsey and um, Luster. Uh, so it's just a, it's, it's a family caught in, uh, in changing times. And they're just in a very rough transitional period. Um, and I, I do want to talk about Dilsey and Luster because yeah. it's some complicated racial territory for sure. But um, the uh, I'll read it actually because it's very short. Hold on. Give me one second. I'm going to get it off my shelf. Actually, um, before we get into that, um, do you mind if I touch upon the Southern value aspect? Okay. I think, I think so- that's very interesting. At the end, at the end of the appendix, it says, "This is very short." It talks about characters and kind of like what happened to them, right? Or kind of summarizes them to some extent. Luster, a man, aged fourteen, who was not only capable of the complete care and security of an idiot twice his age and three times his size, but could keep him entertained. Dilsey, they endured. Uh, I honestly believe Dilsey is probably the strongest character in this entire book because uh, for, I guess, our listeners who don't, haven't read the book, she is a black uh, woman who works for the Compsons, um, who has been working for them for, I think, ever since the kids were little, so 30, 40 years probably. She's older, she's a cook, and she cleans. And I mean, she she can be overbearing at times, but she seems to genuinely be concerned and uh, care for these people. 
And uh, towards the end, you know, we just see Jason absolutely lay into her, call her a wench, call her uh, racial slurs. And it's, it actually is pretty heartbreaking because this is just like someone he's known his whole entire life, someone who's taken care of him, someone who's probably raised him just as much, if not more, than his own mother. Um, so I think another one of the, the themes of this book is uh, racism. It's not entirely about racism, but there is a interesting element of it present here where uh, Jason is sort of frustrating, frustrated and refu- almost humiliated that uh, a black woman who, you know, in this time, you know, he saw as inferior is <laughs> the, probably the most uh, highest character of anyone in the Compson household, you know, his servant. Oh and, yeah, uh, for sure. He, he, he can't take this, you know. At, at, at um, also like, as to her strength and testament, uh, her her faith is, is very much te- I would I would assume tested by the cruelty that she experiences at the hands of her masters, and there's yeah. almost a literal slave morality that is shown, but even then, like in that moment of the of the church scene, she weeps for the Compton family, and she right. still. Pos- a level of empathy and and uh, servitude that she believes is is necessary, and she very much does believe that she is uh, she's needed by these people. It's interesting mm-hmm. that you that you see that she she weeps for them. I actually um, interpret that slightly differently. I thought that um, by her saying that um, I've seen the beginning and I've seen the end and in, in the in the church scene, that kind of meant that um, she's like foreseeing like a reckoning for the Compsons, or at least. The reckoning has already happened, and she's kind of seeing the complete like destruction of her household. So I'm not I'm not sure if she holds contempt for them necessarily. Um, I I think like like you guys have said. I mean, she's definitely the most moral character out of everyone here. Definitely like I guess the most sympathetic. Um, but I I think that she's in in that scene sh- showing the um like the the like inevitable destruction of this family. Um, but I'm, I'm not sure if she's, if she's like happy about this or not. No, no, she's, she's, she's not. That's why I'm saying she's okay. crying. She feels empathy towards this, like reckoning, this destruction of this family that she's served. But like, but she, I, I think, I think that she's like, she almost, feel, she did view herself as a protector of these people, but I don't think that, I think she, she knows that it's not her fault that families falling apart. Oh yeah, for sure. Um. I just like I guess the the, the crying I, I found I, I saw in, the, in that scene was one of like catharsis almost mm-hmm. instead of like sadness. That's at least okay. how I read it based off based mm-hmm. off of like the context. Um, but you know certainly you can have a different interpretation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that that's why we still talk about these books uh, almost a hundred years later uh, because not everything is completely uh, clear. And there's no, a lot sir. of not, definitely yeah. not in this novel. And I want to talk about, you know, I feel like Faulkner is a pretty well-known name, and it, it it kind of amazes me that a book it took it wasn't an immediate success, but eventually this book sold quite a lot of copies back in its day. Eventually, after Faulkner's name was built up a little bit, and that's just kind of crazy to me because this is certainly one of the most difficult books I've ever read, oh, yeah. and um. For something like this to be a, you know, on my, you know, great, 
grandpa's bookshelf I, I couldn't even imagine like this is something i needed uh you know a little bit of spark notes for here and there you know discussion groups to kind of make sure i was getting what everyone else was getting out of it uh so anyway very difficult book and you know with how ahead of his time he was i know james joyce was kind of doing similar things with stream of consciousness but still faulkner in a completely different culture in america being very ahead of his time i'm very glad he was appreciated within his lifetime because a lot of times with writers and artists who are very avant-garde um they don't get the recognition they deserve until much later sometimes much after their death and uh faulkner got a um, a pulitzer i believe in 1949 so once that had happened i read his work was revisited by many um appreciated etc so it was good to see that but i mean was this book more challenging than you'd expected Oh, yeah. I mean, um, the only other Faulkner novel I've read is um, As I Lay Dying, which also isn't an easy read. It's very difficult since um, there's, like, I think 15 different characters that each have, like, POV chapters. Mm -hmm. um, and each of them, you know, are vastly different grammatically. Um, but they're all broken up, but each chapter is pretty short, generally. And it says the character's name of who's, like, um narrating that chapter and it's more or less in chronological order except if it's not it's very obvious whereas yeah. this one like i said before at the beginning it starts with um the perspective of somebody who has no idea of time so that mm -hmm. completely like threw me off um and i really had to like you said i had to like google like who the hell the uh the narrator was for um the first chapter but after after i got to like um chapter two three four um i i, I kind of was able to like reorient myself since they were a little bit more straightforward in my opinion mm -hmm. um even though like there are like a lot of long like stream of consciousness sections um i i, I was able to kind of understand it that um because the way that faulkner like broke up those sections like in like in um quentin's chapter like quentin would be like doing something in the moment like in the present and then he mm -hmm. would see something in the present that would remind him of like something from his past. And then like and then like his emotions would start and kind of like stream of consciousness or like non traditional like grammatical style. Um yeah. and like also like as the chapter went on, he got like more and more and more like disconnected with like traditional grammar, which I think like really highlighted his um like mental deterioration. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I wanted to to go back a few minutes and mention or or, or talk about what uh what Joe was saying in terms of his like or like uh, people back in the day reading it, and I asked my grandmother who is from the south what she thought of Faulkner, and I'm not sure if she's read this, but she told me, oh his books are very good, but uh, you don't really understand what's going on until you're about at the end of them. I thought that was pretty funny. Yeah. That's that's an interesting uh, anecdote. I like that a lot. Um, I, I would agree to a certain extent, except for this book, because I have absolutely no idea how to read the ending, honestly. Like, the last, like, few pages completely baffle me. Mm -hmm. 
I I I do like the bit at the end though about Benji. Uh, you know, he Benji lives in absolute mental chaos, and there's something about Benji entered uh, you know, the town and everything was in its right place. Everything made sense for a moment. Like, uh, you remember that bit, Tony? And mm-hmm. we yeah. talked about it. Yeah. Um, there, there, there was something like a brief moment of, uh, a brief sigh of relief we get for Benji, I feel, which is not anything, something we get in the whole rest of the book. Hmm. Yeah. And I think, I think the, the last line. Yeah. Yeah. So are you talking about like the, like the final lines of the book? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and that comes after like he kind of um, had had an episode because I think Luster like went the wrong way around the uh, the, the 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 statue, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's that's interesting. So maybe maybe by the end there's like some hope that um, like the chaos and and Benji's like life and and like his family, but also like the chaos like internally, maybe will mm-hmm. like kind of subside. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's that's likely to happen. Yeah, that's that's interesting. Thanks for bringing that up. That actually clears up a lot yeah. for me. Yeah, for sure. Um, uh, would you guys like to talk about um, the southern values shown in the book and and, and like this idea and like what it kind of means with, with like the different characters? Because I found that really interesting personally. Yeah. Um, so, uh, modernism. Yeah. I don't know who wants to start. Go ahead, Tony. You got so Tony. with with uh, with modernism, uh, we we begin to. See, I think actually starting with Dostoevsky, we start to see like really weird people in literature that I'm not sure if we like. We we saw before like we see these internal dialogues. We see uh, characters that are uh, like very corrupted and haunted by their past or perhaps future and actions that they've done and things that people have done to them. And within uh, Within the sound of the fury, and I suppose Faulkner's other works, we see this type of modernist stylization put into uh, a in, into the American South, which is a place where uh, people are strongly still very influenced by the Bible, and there is still a very strong idea of what morality is. But back in back in Faulkner's time of writing this, um, given that the South is, is very commu- was very communal. Um, everybody would have like known everybody else, and everybody would would have uh, known the drama of of uh, each each person. And so there there are taboos that are created, for better or for worse, that sort of keep everything into this sort of idea of their own morality. And I know I know that a lot of people think that this is like this is um. Well, I know that Duran, you've mentioned that like that you think that. Um, Quentin, for example, is like longing for a, uh, a, a, a like idealization of the past, and um, is kind of nostalgic for this. But I, I'd argue that that like that was uh, never perceived by any individual to be something that actually existed, but rather it's the loss of the ideal that Quentin is mourning, and I, I guess around this this, this time. Uh, the cracks of, of uh, the cracks of like these values. The cracks of like these ideolo- ideological values are starting to show. It, it's yeah. almost it's almost like less of a idealized past and more of a. Uh, there was almost like this goal 
that that people felt like they were vaguely striving for, you know, with mm-hmm. their values, kind of like this yeah. idealized society that we are all going to continually strive for. And losing the Civil War uh, kind of put the knife in that uh, is what I kind of see it as. It's more of like a, a communal, we're all in this together. This is what we're striving for. This is the ideal. We're going to do our best to preserve it. N- not like, oh, there used to be a utopia in the South and now it's gone. It's more like, mm-hmm. oh, we're all pushing towards something. Now we aren't. Oh, oh God, my life has no meaning. Yeah, that's so how yeah, I, 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 yeah I agree with that. That's interesting. Yeah, that's, that's, a, good, that's a good perspective. Um I I'm I I think well, let's talk about Quentin a little bit then. Um yeah. with, with with like where where his values come from cuz I remember like Joe uh posted in like the group chat that he was like um trying to figure out like where Quentin's like very strong values kind of came from when um Yeah. Yeah, he had like this very cynical father and like a not very like responsive mother. Yeah. I I did wonder that because I mean his uh, his father has the best quote in the book, right? His father gives him a watch and says, uh, I give you the mausoleum of all hope and desire. Uh, and, you know, that whole quote, I'll just, I'll just read it. Yeah, he gives, his father gives him a watch and says, I give you the mausoleum of all hope and desire. I give it to you, not that you may remember time, but that you might forget it now and then for a moment and not spend all of your breath trying to conquer it. Because no battle is ever won, he said. They are not even fought. The field only reveals to man his own folly and despair, and victory is an illusion of philosophers and fools. So that's his father speaking. And that is that is not a that's not a paragon of Southern values. I, I think that's quite a beautiful quote, mm-hmm. but it, it doesn't reflect uh Quentin's view at all. And uh, we don't learn a whole lot about their extended family, and like Duran said. Uh, unresponsive mother so it is kind of curious as to where quentin's absolute fervor comes from yeah um and i I think yeah i definitely think it's a combination of this nostalgia for um these ideals that have never really kind of existed in, in, in in their purity but also yeah this idea that um these 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 ideals were going to be used to to like come together for like a collective goal and that idea Mm -hmm. is like kind of like impossible to achieve now um and there is like some kind of like i think strange irony in the book that um quentin seems the one who's the most moral i mean we see him trying to save this um like a italian girl i think um, yeah yeah who's lost um but he gets kind of a uh like thought that he was uh kidnapping her um at the same time like yeah he's this person who like espouses all these morals but in in a way he committed i guess like the singular most like immoral act in the book which is like um committing like incest with his sister well he he never actually did that though oh he didn't i thought i thought that uh he confessed to his his father that he did but the the dad's like you didn't do this and i thought i thought the point was um that the father like couldn't believe that he could that he can do something like this and um no he called he called him on his bullshit and um he that that that, that devastated quentin even more because he viewed um impregnating his sister and running off with her and getting married to her as being more moral than her having a child out of wedlock 
um, and then having a, a poor marriage. So mm, I see. Um, he, he, he tried to do that to save face, and that didn't work, and that added to his agony um, that his father saw through his bullshit. And, um, yeah, but that's not to say he didn't have a, a strange borderline sexual obsession with his sister he he definitely did yeah 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 for sure damn i come i completely missed that <laughs> it's okay no 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 if you i mean i only totally got that because i, I read like a, a a chapter summary after i finished quentin's chapter that kind of elucidated that better gotcha okay yeah mm-hmm. yeah no that, that's actually that's that's really interesting it's I easy think. to miss it's easy yeah. to miss because when i first read it without um reading analysis first after i totally thought the same thing gotcha okay mm-hmm. um i actually also something i missed was um uh quentin like drowning himself um for the suicide because oh yeah where, where, yeah dude you... the, su- the suicide is actually like it's almost like implied to me mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. uh it never says and then he jumped off the bridge and into the water right. like but that's what happened if you read any analysis or summaries or interpretations that's what everyone says but in the text at the end of the chapter it's like he walked out of his room and turned off the light yeah, yeah exactly. it, it, it uh it, also like i, I wasn't i'll honestly say i wasn't quite sure about what the deal was with like the the last one of the last few sections of the um of that chapter it kind of just circles around and keeps like talking about like some sort of plant and there's some sort of weird vision that happens oh yeah, yeah like hun- honeysuckle or something yeah, right. yeah 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 i don't know if you guys could could uh well because i think with that at all. there well in the um in the analysis i think people say that he like drowns himself like next to honeysuckle or something like that mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. um yeah okay but even though like like you guys are saying there isn't this um strict like there's not this explicit uh thing that he actually jumped off a bridge and committed suicide at the end of the chapter like i definitely got a feeling that it was leading up to that um maybe because of his mental state and and the way that everything was written so i kind of just assumed that he committed suicide by then and i was looking for it in um the chapters like afterwards but it's either like not mentioned at all or like mentioned kind of like in passing like very like subtly you know like um i remember like um uh the mother says to jason that like thank god like you're the one that god left me or something like that right mm. instead, yeah. of, instead of quentin yeah um and, and so like the, by then i like i knew that that something had happened to quentin although yeah i know for sure like it was never like explicit mm-hmm Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um. All right. So we talked about Quentin for a little bit. Um. Do you want to talk about Jason at all? Yeah. Um. I. I think Jason. Is. Complex, but kind of. Easy to, almost easier to understand than a lot of the other characters he's very bitter and cynical and obsessed with money and uh you know life's uh life's hardships have driven him to uh you know accept this farm job rather than a bank job that he was promised and he kind of resented uh miss quinton from day one uh caddy's daughter because 
of the responsibility that was thrust onto him that he didn't really want. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I think in him we just see a a bitter, money grubbing, uh, cynical. Uh, I mean, everyone was racist back then, but especially racist. <laughs> yeah. Um, kind of asshole. And um, I think at the end, I mean, it, he kind of gets what he deserves. I mean, with with Miss um, Quinton taking the money that she was owed that was being given to her and him leaving him in a, in squalor. And it, it's almost like a, you know, he, he treated this, this kid horribly and this family horribly, Dilsey horribly, his mother horribly for, for so long. And he just kind of ends up uh, in misery with nothing. He sends away Benji and, you know, one can only wonder what, what happened of him after that. Just yeah. kind of he also a, has a uh, Benji castrated, right? Yeah, yes, Benji, Benji castrated indeed. It's kind of a... They're all tragic characters, and I think he's he is definitely one. He, he, he um, got back what he put out into the world, you know? He put, he put negativity right. and hatred into the world, and he got um, his money, quote-unquote, even though it was never meant for him, yeah. taken. He got his family... He sent away his family, or they left him. And... Um, He's left in squalor. In the um, in the appendix, I thought this was interesting. It said that it was only it was so he was actually like seven thousand dollars, and that three thousand dollars was the money that like he had saved up, but four thousand of it was the money that he had stolen, but he couldn't complain about any of it because of right. the implication of, of his theft. Didn't yeah. Uh, yeah, I think I think the interesting thing about Jason is that he certainly reps with what he sowed. But also, mm-hmm. the whole, like, creation of his, like, personality, like, the formation of, like, the, the person that he became is, it makes sense, like, logically based off of um, where he came from and, like, all the experiences he had, you know? Like, like he, was, yeah. he was kind of screwed over by um, his mom when Quentin was sent to... Um, harvard instead of him um yeah he was he was kind of screwed over when um he didn't get the bank job which i mean and that definitely wasn't the fault of miss quentin or caddy or anything like that um but but he like kind of like puts all this blame on on caddy and miss quentin which kind of like perpetuates this i'd think like cycle of like evilness or like nastiness that like he Mm -hmm. got from like his parents and now he's putting on like you mm-hmm. know, the next generation. Yeah, sure. Did you get the feeling that like that like they maybe maybe this is wrong, but I, I feel like Quentin was probably already in a bad state like before they even sent him to Harvard. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, sure. and, and 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 I feel like they all kind of like knew it was a bad idea, but they were like, he's the eldest son; he must be given the best opportunities. And that's just like kind of a traditional thing to do. Yeah, there's like there's definitely this this um, tension throughout the novel between like traditional values and like what you should do traditionally mm-hmm. versus what's like actually good for the people yeah. in the family. Yeah, yeah, and Quentin probably should have been the one to go to college. Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, and in the case of like Miss Quentin, also, um, like Jason keeps saying that he need, like uh, she needs to follow like what he says and like. Um, she's like this uh you know like very promiscuous and like terrible like person but in reality all of that's kind of just like a response 
to like the horrible like childhood that she had and like how much she was like abused abused mm. so um it's also it's like growing up like, there, like mother it, and father yeah it's like completely like unreasonable for him to um kind of like cry for this like traditional kind of idea of managing the household when like he is at fault for the way that quentin is behaving miss quentin Mm, I think it's much more circumstantial than just his fault. Like, oh yeah, yeah. yeah. She, um, she doesn't have right. like her mom abandoned her. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Sorry. Yeah. Um, it's it is you're you're right. It is circumstantial, but he yeah. is um placing all of this blame on her without realizing that he's also like a big part of that as well. Yeah. Uh, like it's I don't know. It's just kind of a, a, like a messed up situation. Right. Um, and I think that I, I found some like pretty interesting, maybe like anti-capitalist um, ideas around Jason's character, because like he, he, he is like by far the person in the book that's like the most addicted to money. And I think that becomes that became especially apparent to me when it's revealed that the money that Quentin stole, Miss Quentin, was actually that that she was like owed in the first place. Mm -hmm. and like by then kind of like any sympathy i had towards um jason's character kind of like threw like flew out the window yeah um and like it, it, i i don't know i thought i thought it was it was interesting that you know this kind of like evil character um was like his only like real i guess like values or, or morals or those like surrounding um money you know I don't know. There's there's something. I think I feel like there's something there that I that I'm missing. I like. I sense like kind of like an anti-capitalist angle there. Uh, I think it's uh, anti-greed for sure. Yeah. Um, potentially, you could take an anti-capitalist message out of there. Um, I think Faulkner works on a um even. So I think Faulkner's work is not necessarily concerned with the south not necessarily concerned with politics as much as it's concerned with just like the general nature of people oh I and agree. yeah um so i don't think he's necessarily thinking about anything political when he's writing or some symbols or some uh of you know this is a symbol of the corruption of capitalism i think more so you can look towards the deeper impl implications on the nature of humans in this book and then you can extrapolate and say, oh, well, Jason represents a corrupt capitalist for this reason, this reason, and this reason. However, I think Jason's uh, corruptitude, I don't know if that's a word, but I just, <laughs> maybe I just made it up. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> is largely due to his life circumstance. Perhaps capitalism has exacerbated his negative tendencies though yeah he becomes kind of like this extreme version of like i guess yeah. the society that he grew up in um yeah. speaking of what you were saying earlier about what faulkner is like really interested in um i'm sure you guys have, have read this quote but there's a great quote by Ralph ellison on the back of my book that says um for all his concern with the south faulkner was actually seeking out the nature of man Thus, we must mm -hmm. turn to him for that continuity of moral purpose, which has made for the greatness is the greatness of our classics. Um, and I think mm. I think that's a, that's a really I didn't good read that. Way. That's cool. Yeah, it's a really good way of, of reading um, Faulkner because 
I think I think it's very like disingenuous to kind of you know pigeonhole Faulkner like like you were saying into into very like specific politics, very specific time period, um, location and all that kind of thing. It, it's definitely something that the reason why we're reading it now is because I mean I, I still feel like it's it's very relevant for today. Um, right. That he's talking about the nature of man. Right. It's like why we still read like Greek tragedies, like they're thousands of years old from completely different societies, but people haven't in their hearts haven't changed that much. Right. Um, and I, I think it's cool that um, Ralph, you have a quote from Ralph Ellison. The back of my book has a has a quote from Toni Morrison that uh, these great black authors were able to to read Faulkner and um, understand what he was getting at. Um, because there is a lot of racist language in his books, but mm-hmm. that's not a reflection of him. That's a reflection of the South, and it's also largely a critique. I mean, like we've said, I think the one of the the most moral and the strongest character in The Sound and the Fury is Dilsey, and Luster's up there, too. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah, I mean, like, Faulkner is certainly unable to separate this kind of, um, like, his kind of like uh this like ingrained racism that comes uh-huh. from the south although he yeah. certainly like does try and i think it's like it's very disingenuous to like um dismiss his work as just being racist well certainly like there are it is and there are like certain uh-huh. elements of racism like throughout his work there's a lot uh-huh. more to it and i and i really do think that there are certain commentaries on racism like like we take the uh, character of jason for example yeah. It was like, you know, the like probably the most evil character in this book and also like by far the most racist as mm-hmm. well. Um so and and you know, this is this is like the case for any any like great work of art um from from the past. You need to go into it from um the perspective of that time. While certainly mm-hmm. you're able to still criticize it for being problematic. Certainly. Yeah. Sounds good to me. All right. Um, any uh, other points you guys want to touch on? I feel like feel like we covered it pretty well. All right. Cool. Um, all right. That this was a, a very very good read. Um, it certainly solidified Faulkner as like probably one of my favorite authors. Um, have you guys read oh, anything yeah. else by him? I'm very excited to get more into Faulkner. I've got his short stories here, and I've got um, uh, as I lay dying, but I yes. this is my first Faulkner. Red Rose for Emily, yes, and the Bear. Very good. Yes, uh, Rose for Emily. Uh, big fan of that one. I think that that was the first um, uh, piece of literature I've read by Faulkner. Um, highly recommend As I Lay Dying. Um, one of my favorite books of all time, probably. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, I'm very excited to read um go down moses and uh light in august those are the other ones i have at home um all mm-hmm. right so um as we wrap up our section on sound of the fury we're gonna get into what each of us has been doing personally um we'll start with you joe what have you been watching reading listening to or playing uh, all right cool um so i have a couple movies to talk about a couple movies to recommend along with a couple books. So I guess I'll start with the books, keep the literature theme real quick. Um, the Corrections by Jonathan Franzen. Have you heard of it? I have not. So this guy, a uh, book written in 2000, it was pretty famous. It won the Penn Faulkner Award, actually. Um, 
it was it's just sort of a um commentary on just like it's a family drama right and it, it's about an older couple and their three children who are all fully grown adults and um it kind of gives you an in-depth character study on each of these children and the book culminates with um all of them coming together for one last christmas together because the father is dying and it's it's very uh it's moving but also very funny it's i would i would probably classify it as a dark comedy you've got you know children adult children who are just kind of like corrupted through all sorts of like uh modern american decadences and confusion and just a great contemporary novel the guy was friends with david foster wallace if you like david foster wallace and things like that you'll probably dig this so the corrections very good very funny very memorable i would probably call it one of my favorites um terms terms of movies there's a couple ones i'd like to recommend first off i want to recommend alan clark to anyone who doesn't know about him he was a british filmmaker through 70s to 90s 80s all around in the second half of the 20th century and he was just making these social realist pieces that are fantastic um check out scum it's an absolutely brutal prison film about uh british prisons it's got a lot to say it's it's riveting best prison movie i've ever seen probably uh, although i gotta say um, a man escaped in the hole are also up there yes uh Made in Britain. It's Tim Roth's first role. He plays a Nazi skinhead. Um, and he's just absolutely wreaking havoc in the social institutions uh, in Britain. Have no idea how to contain him and save him. Uh, a short film recommendation. Kitchen Sink by Alison McLean. Um, it's one of the scariest fucking things I've ever seen. It's kind <laughs> of a short film classic. I was shown it in one of my classes pretty well known it won something at can or something like that it's pretty famous in this time it's from 1989 it's a black and white kind of a lo-fi um body horror surrealistic psychological horror type thing it's 14 minutes go watch it with the lights off alone and be scared as hell because i was um <laughs> less blank uh, i've been getting into him his films are so warm and just fill me with joy uh, Spend It All is the one I watched. It's just a sh- little 40-minute documentary about music and food in uh, the bayou, Cajun bayou, and it's just warm, loving character studies and of these people who live uh, in an isolated part of Louisiana who are very content with their lives. And one more. Tulane Blacktop, directed by Monty Hellman. It's an early 70s movie, and it is, you know, from that new Hollywood period. Um weirdest fucking movie and it uh, from the american 70s period that you'll see um in 70s was the weirdest period of american filmmaking ever and this is the the crown jewel of of just odd it's pretty much a slow cinema film it's starring james taylor the fucking singer uh that you know your your mom and grandma love uh <laughs> dennis wilson from the beach boys Lori Bird, who's just some random girl, and Warren Oates, who's the only real actor in the whole movie. He's in a bunch of peck and paw. You've probably seen him. And it's just about these kids who challenge this older guy, played by Warren Oates, to a race from the Southwest up to D.C. 
and it becomes less about the race and more just about like the road and the drone of driving and sitting in the back seat and stopping and eating a at a diner and listening to the music and meeting strange characters and having weird sex with random strangers and um it's it's an experience man uh hard to find like uh like stranger than paradise oh yeah yeah i've I've heard some some comparisons to stranger than paradise and i i think that that definitely makes some sense um there's a Harry. There's a very early Harry Dean Stanton appearance. Um, I won't spoil what his scene is like. I mean, he's in one scene, but it's very memorable. Um, very hard movie to stream. Actually, kind of impossible to stream. However, Criterion has released it on Blu-ray. So, you really want to take my recommendation to heart. Wait for the next Criterion sale and cop that. God, I hope that's going to be soon. Yeah. <laughs> All right, that's my piece, Tony. All right. So I haven't been watching a bunch, but. I've been reading, or I finished uh, before we started Sound of the Fury, The Crossing by Cormac McCarthy, which is the second of the Border Trilogy. It was a very good, uh, but not great, book about this character, Billy Parham, and his brother, who make various journeys across the border and into Mexico. And one of them is with a wolf, which is very endearing and very dangerous. And across the way, many tragedies occur, and it was a very sad book, so it's but overall good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I also read a short story, Barn Burning, by Murakami, which is what I've heard Burning is based upon. And I thought it was a very good, very interesting short story in a very casual style that I'd not seen before. So that was cool. I had to check that one out. Um, I've read uh, just the bon- Barn Burning by Faulkner, but I haven't mm. read the uh, the Murakami one yet. I'm interested in okay. burning. How is bon- How is a uh, Barn Burning by Faulkner? It's great. Um, I don't understand it at all, but I love yeah, it. <laughs> I actually I actually tried to read it uh, after I read B- Barn Burning by Murakami. I tried to read the one by Faulkner, and I got about three pages in, and I was I was a little taken aback. I was like, this is some of the craziest writing I've seen. Very intimidating. Uh, so then other than that, I've been listening to um, Towns Van Zandt, Bob Dylan, Ultra Wall, and it's been pretty good. Been, been into this sort of like singer-songwriter, folky, country-ish style, hmm. which is, uh, I guess, a cornerstone of American music, but I like that it conveys stories. I think that's pretty cool. Um, I have been watching some stuff. Um, I watched Scorpio Rising for the first time, which is my first uh, like Kenneth Anger film. Um, I actually rewatched Scorpio Rising for a class the other day. Oh wow! <laughs> it's it's a ride. Oh my god, I absolutely loved it. Like I, I yeah. like, instantly fell in love. I just there's there's so much going on there with this idea of like um hyper masculinity and homosexuality. Yeah. Um, and like that kind of like strange like tie to like hyper masculinity and like nazism and therefore mm-hmm. like um the uh, the homosexuality like aspect of that um it's amazing i love the editing the music is incredible um not only because yeah, the tracks yeah. are great but like how it's used in yeah the, that was in actually that was yeah. one of the first films ever to, to score um itself with pop music uh yeah. that was something that was never really done beforehand so 
in a way, it's one of the most influential films, at least music-wise, because now every fucking movie has pop songs in it, rock songs in oh, it. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, like, I know, like, Scorsese has, like, been, like, a huge... Oh, Ken Ang was a huge, like, influence on, like, Scorsese. Like, yeah. Like, Goodfellas or, like, Tarantino, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. Um, and, like you said, like, like this, this trend right now, like, every every film has, like, only, like, pop song soundtracks. So, um, it's great. I'm eagerly anticipating my um, BFI collection of his films. Oh, yeah, enjoy that. He's got a lot of fun stuff to watch and interesting Thanks. stuff. Yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely loved it. Um, such an interesting guy, too. Um, I, re- I watched uh, Possession for the first time by um, Zolpowski, which... Yeah, I saw Possession once, and I found it very vexing. I absolutely loved it because of that. Yeah. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. I, I would highly recommend it. I would also highly recommend not going in going into it completely blind because it's absolutely like batshit movie all this shit happens i have no idea what it means but also it has some of the most interesting um cinematography i've seen um every single shot of the film something is moving whether it be the camera or like um a person uh everything is is filmed from non-traditional angles um there's all there's there's all this, this use of like a rotating camera in several shots, I found really, really interesting. So I, I would mm-hmm. highly recommend that. Probably I want to go back to it. Films. I, I would, yeah. Um, we, yeah, we should. I've been, inter- I'd be interested in watching his other films too, because I haven't seen anything else by him. Yeah, it's the one I've seen too. Cool. Yeah. Um, I also saw Weekend by Godard. Oh, that's um, the crazy one. I think I love it. I am not sure. I, I love a lot of it. Um, yeah. The. The, the 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 one or two shot um scene of the car accident um where the camera is like um panning from left to right is like one of the coolest things i've seen in my entire life oh yeah <laughs> dude so I, I saw that movie for the first time at uh, the ifc center in new york city two years ago and oh my god during that traffic scene where all the cars are lined up it was so loud. I think they intentionally did this to fuck with us. <laughs> Unbelievably loud. They made it so loud. I was, fu- I had my uh, fingers all the way down into my ears, and it was so loud. It was like <laughs> ear bleedingly loud. So whenever I remember weekend, I always remember that unforgettable ear splitting car scene when I was in New York. It's amazing. Um, I yeah. kind of wish I had that same experience because yeah, um, I kind of think I felt that to like a, to a lesser extent watching yeah. on my uh on my tv yeah um, but it's great um probably one of my favorite godards um i i feel like i, I like a lot of stuff he's done um in the late 60s like um i, I love les chinois les chinois oh I, I do too i do too yeah i think that's a really genius film um speaking of we we're talking about dostoevsky earlier in the in the podcast that's um that's his like light adaptation of dostoevsky's demons um hmm. Oh, is it? I didn't even know it was an adaptation of Demons. Yeah, yeah, it's like it's like a, it's a light adaptation from from what I've heard. Um, that's actually what 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 has me interested in, in reading Demons. Yeah, I'm excited to get into that. Um, I rewatched the Godfather series, so the first two Ooh. movies because there's no third movie. Oh, so <laughs> so so did Tony and I recently, and yeah. you know, I always I, I always very much liked those movies when I saw them a while ago, but seeing them again. God damn, they are beautiful, perfect, among my favorites. They're I love fantastic. them. Fantastic. Um, yeah. I, I, I was, I was expecting to go into these uh, thinking like, oh, you know, they, they, they can't be that good, right? 
Like, yeah. They can't be that good. But no, um, I they're they're amazing, and I've I've really like a hard time deciding which one I like more because I think mm-hmm. like they both do like different things like super super well. Um, I'm thinking like the like the tightness of the original film. Yeah. And then um. The tragedy of the second one. The tragedy, yeah, the tragedy of the second one. Um, and I yeah. love like the the Robert De Niro bits in the second one too. Yeah, cool. I think the opening scene of the first Godfather is one of the best scenes of all time. Oh yeah, uh, with mm-hmm. yeah, you know, I believe in America. I believe in America. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. It, it is. It is really like the quintessential like American story. Yeah, I would say so. I would say so. Yeah. Well, y- y'all should uh, uh, watch the Godfather if you haven't. What are you doing? What are you doing? Yeah, exactly. If you're <laughs> listening to Cinephile New Wave and you haven't seen The Godfather and The Godfather Part 2, stop the podcast right now and go out. Just and delete get your hands on them. Spotify from your phone. Yeah. And go watch The Godfather. Finally, mm-hmm. um, I haven't, I've only been reading Sound and Fury, so I haven't been reading anything else. But, um, oh, actually, no. I read um, Amosutila's The Palm Wine Drunkard. Drinkard. Mm-hmm. Um, it was this very interesting i think it was a nigerian novel written in, in this kind of uh unique style um which it, it's very like it's kind of like plain almost like casual like like camus um like mm-hmm. a stranger but it incorporates like these elements of like magical realism without like ever really explaining any of these things um which mm-hmm. is like, it's really it's really beautiful um it's kind of like this like strange collection of um like folk tales but under like the guise of like one like one longer tale it's kind of like a like arabian nights i'd say how did you get into this book how'd you hear about it um it's actually something i've been reading for my um comedy and cruelty class uh, english class oh cool it was a quiz bowl question last last week oh really (laughs) there you go well i would have gotten that question right Um, i didn't get it right so (laughs) Um, and finally, for listening, um, been getting a bit more into Leonard Cohen, uh, listening oh, yeah, to, yes. yeah, Songs in Love of Hate. Um, oh, yeah. As that's a, that's a great one. Oh, it's yeah. amazing. Mm-hmm. Famous Blue Raincoat is, like, masterpiece yeah. of a song. That's, like, probably oh, one of my yeah. songs ever now. Um, yeah. And I, I, I love Famous Blue Raincoat. And in terms of listening, a quick shout-out. This is on behalf of me and Tony. If you're not listening to Sade... Mm. that's s-a-d-e sade go out and listen to love deluxe it's her best album god damn every time i put that album on which is every day it is like falling into a warm uh bed of just like pillows and warmness and ecstasy and beauty it's incredible it's so good it's a very warm and loving and romantic yeah love by sade got it i'll have to check it out yeah all right. Um, All right, fellas. That's it for us. Thank you for joining me, Joe and Tony. Of course, Thank anytime. You. Yes. Thank you for having us. I will see you guys soon another time. But that's Absolutely. it. Absolutely. Goodbye. Peace. Goodbye.